Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's awesome to be with you once again. Thanks for taking time to join us. Do you know what time it is? Of course you do. That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study 2024 edition. And today, it's Wednesday, February 28th. We're continuing our study of the book of Hebrews. Today, we're going to be studying chapter 8 in its entirety, verses 1 to 13. We're going to talk about how Christ is our high priest. Lots to talk about. Really excited about this. But before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, thank you for this amazing journey. We continue in this book of Hebrews. It's so good. Lord, we love learning about you. So teach us more today. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. You might want to get your Bible or Bible app out and ready. Turn to Hebrews 8. And as you're doing so, let me share this. Chapter 7, we talked about that last week, actually the last two weeks, explained that Jesus was a greater priest than the priest who had descended from Israel's first high priest, Aaron. Now, in chapter 8, the writer indicates that the temples, rituals, and the objects of the Old Covenant were always meant to be symbolic. They were real and valuable, but their ultimate worth was in their symbolism. God always intended for those to point towards a better covenant, and rather than something repetitive, earthly, and limited. God planned to offer something completed, personal, and eternal through Jesus Christ. So let's get those Bibles ready to go. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Let's begin. Verse 1 reads, here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. The question is, this verse begins to condense the writer's description of Jesus into a few core ideas. What do you think they are? Well, right off the bat, the writer says that we have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. In other words, Jesus, our high priest, is seated in heaven at God's right hand. This portrayal of Christ is a key argument for the deity of Christ in the book of Hebrews. This place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God belonged to Jesus because he was more than just a high priest. He is God's son. Now, you see where it says heaven? Heaven refers to the heavenly sanctuary, the dwelling place of God, the ultimate and eternal destination for all who believe, and therefore an even greater reality than what we see. This present world is merely a representation or shadow of what's going to come. Because of this, Christ's ministry will be greater than the priests that served in the earthly tabernacle or temple, as we're going to see in the very next verse. Verse 2 reads, There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. The question is, in verse 1, the writer describes Christ's exaltation at God's right hand. In this verse, what does the writer say about Christ's service? The writer says that Christ, the exalted one, is a servant who, look for it, ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. In other words, Jesus serves by taking his rightful place as our Savior and mediator. His place in heaven secures our place there. Christ returned to the presence of God in heaven, look for it, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. God allows us to enter that same throne room and bring our worship and request to him. This true place of worship does not imply that the tabernacle and temple on earth were false, but that they were imperfect shadows of the true and perfect place of worship. Before Christ, 
the high priest could only enter a special place, the most holy place, to come into the presence of God. Today, through prayer, we can enter the throne room of heaven, and we will one day live eternally in that presence. By extension, then, the old way through the Jewish priesthood no longer exists. It was replaced by Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 3 is up next. Take a look. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. The question is, what does the writer say is the offering our high priest must make? Christ, our high priest, offered his own life to God in our place, the perfect gift that could never be surpassed. Back in chapter 7, verse 27, it said, He sacrificed himself on the cross. Christ's sacrifice is all-sufficient, that is, all sins are covered in his once-for-all offering to God. So his role as priest, his sacrifice, and his service to God, they all surpass the plan under the Old Covenant. Verse 4 is next. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. The question is, in this verse, the writer says that under the old Jewish system, Jesus would not have been allowed to be a priest. Why? Well, first of all, under the old Jewish system, priests were chosen from the tribe of Levi and sacrifices were offered daily on the altar for forgiveness of sins. This system would not have allowed Jesus to be a priest because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. The use of the present tense in there already are priests. It indicates that this book was written about A.D. 70, when the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, ending the sacrifices. But Jesus' perfect sacrifice had already ended the need for priests and sacrifices. Christ was appointed high priest of a new and better system that allowed God's people to enter directly into God's presence. Let's look at verse 5. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. The question here is, in prior verses, the writer hints at the idea of God using the laws given to Moses as symbols of what was to come. How does this verse make that claim directly? The writer says that the priests who offered sacrifices served in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. This continues to show the insignificance of the Jewish priest's earthly service. Certainly, it was important work, but their service was only an illustration of what was coming. God gave Moses the pattern for the tabernacle, and Moses was warned to follow it carefully, to make everything according to the pattern God had shown him. This earthly sanctuary was meant to reflect, however imperfectly, the heavenly tabernacle. The book of Hebrews does not try to describe heaven. Instead, it shows how Christ serves in a better, more personal way than any other priest could. Because the temple in Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed, using the worship system there as an example would have had great impact on its original audience. Their temple and all they knew about the original tabernacle constructed by Moses had been an imperfect picture intended to give the people an appreciation of the heavenly reality that would one day be theirs. Verse 6 is next. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Here's the question. Why does the writer say Jesus' ministry is far superior to the old priesthood? 
Although the priests who came from the line of Aaron possessed a job of high honor and dignity, the ministry Jesus received, it says, is far superior to the old priesthood. Jesus' ministry and the new covenant are superior for several reasons. The first is they completely fulfill and replace the priest's ministry in the old covenant. Second, they last for eternity because Jesus is high priest forever. Thirdly, they require no further sacrifices. Fourth, they accomplish what all the other sacrifices couldn't do, which is truly atone for sin. And lastly, they provide sinful humanity the opportunity to have a personal relationship with God. This better covenant is based on better promises, the verse says, that the writer is going to discuss in more detail, as we'll see in verses 10 through 12. Verse 7 is next. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. Here's the question. What is the writer saying about the old covenant compared to the new covenant here? First, let me be sure that we understand what the old and new covenants are. The old covenant is also known as the Mosaic covenant or the law of Moses, while the new covenant is the promise that God will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned to him. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant and his death on the cross is the basis of the promise. Now that said, here's a question. Is the writer saying that the old covenant was faulty? No, not at all. But the old covenant was in every way preparatory for and pointing to the dynamic of the new covenant. The old covenant was replaced because it was not eternal, not sufficient to completely deal with sin, and could not provide sinful humanity with a relationship with God. In its time, the old covenant was necessary, but it needed to be replaced by a better covenant, as was prophesied by Jeremiah and quoted in the following verses. Verse 8 is up next. But when God found fault with the people, he said, and here's the quote, The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The question is, the writer now begins a quotation from another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, and again references a new covenant. What do you think that this means? Since the people continually broke God's covenant, God found fault with the old covenant. A part of the covenant involved keeping God's laws, but the Israelites chose to disobey. When they failed to keep the requirements imposed on them, they broke the covenant. But God promised a new covenant that would not be filled with laws about sacrifices and other external responsibilities. Instead, it would bring about spiritual reconciliation by producing change in people's inner beings. Verses 8 through 12 quote, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. I'd highly encourage you to read that. This is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. Jeremiah prophesied about a future time when a better covenant would be established because the first covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai was imperfect and provisional. The Israelites could not maintain faithfulness to it because their hearts had not been truly changed. This change of heart required Jesus' full sacrifice to remove sin and the Holy Spirit's permanent indwelling. When we turn our lives over to Christ, the Holy Spirit instills in us a desire to obey God. Next in verse 9, the quote continues, This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. The question is, the writer continues the quote from Jeremiah 31. What does this verse tell you about the Israelites' behavior and God's reaction? The old covenant was broken not once, but many times. 
the Jewish readers' ancestors had been miraculously freed from slavery in Egypt. In the wilderness, they had received God's laws and had made a covenant of obedience. But they did not remain faithful, the verse says, and by that disobedience, they voided their part of the agreement. So God turned his back on them. This means that they faced the consequences of sin instead of receiving the blessings of obedience. While God may have allowed such consequences, he never abandoned his people. Instead, he promised something better for all who would remain faithful. Next up, I want to take verses 10, 11, and 12 together. This is the quote continuing. Here we go. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hands and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Here's the question. As the writer concludes the quotation from Jeremiah 31, there are four provisions about the new covenant and its effects on us that he writes about. What are they? Under God's new covenant, God's law is inside us. It's no longer an external set of rules and principles. The Holy Spirit reminds us of Christ's words, activates our consciences, influences our motives and desires, and makes us want to obey. Now we desire to do God's will with all our heart and mind. The new covenant has four provisions. Here's the first one. The new covenant provides inward change. Look at verse 10. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. This means having a new heart and with it, a new sense of intimacy with God where he's known as father and where Christians are known as children of God and heirs. This new heart will bring the people's relationship with God to a personal level, not just through intermediaries. Having these laws written on our hearts, it means that we will want to obey God. Secondly, the new covenant provides intimacy with God. Again, in verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. This reveals a positive, close relationship between God and his people. In the first covenant, people continually fail to live up to this relationship. In the new covenant, this relationship is secured through Jesus Christ. Although the promise was always there, it now has a newer and richer meaning because of the provision of Christ. Thirdly, the new covenant provided knowledge of God. Look at verse 11. Everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. The new covenant brings a new relationship between people and God, making each believer a priest, 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and 9. Every believer can understand God's saving promises as revealed in the Bible because he or she has God as a living presence in his or her heart. Of course, there will still be the need for teachers, but every believer will be able to know God, not just the priests or a select few. And lastly, the new covenant provides complete forgiveness for sins. Look at verse 12. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. People of the old covenant had forgiveness of sins, but they had experienced an incomplete, unlasting forgiveness as demonstrated by the incessant need to make sacrifices for sins. In the new covenant, sin and its effect of separating people from God has been eliminated. God wipes out memory of sin and renders sin as if it had never occurred. Sin's impact is completely overcome, making it possible for believers to receive the promised blessing. There's no longer any barrier to our relationship with God. Now, all four of these characteristics bring about a true righteousness that could not have been known under the old covenant.
And now our last verse for today, verse 13. It says, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. Our last question today is this. Here the writer returns to the point he's been writing about throughout this whole chapter. What is that point? He's saying that introducing a new covenant means that God has made the first one obsolete. The old one was fulfilled by Christ and completed by him, so it was no longer needed. Old systems, old sacrifices, and the old priesthood have no value now in securing God's approval. One writer puts it like this. Hang on to the old covenant, if you will, but you're hanging on to a shadow, a bubble ready to burst, a moment passing into history. The old covenant has served its purpose and will soon be just a memory. You can't live in the past, so your real choice is clear. Accept the new covenant or none at all. Beloved, God doesn't change his mind. He did not send his son to repeal, abolish, or annul what he had told his people previously. Instead, the father sent his son as a fulfillment of the old covenant. Jesus' coming had been part of God's plan from creation. The disciples didn't thoroughly understand how Jesus fulfilled the scripture until after his death and his resurrection. Beloved, this brings us to the end of today's study of Hebrews chapter 8. Not a long chapter at all, but filled with amazing information. What an awesome journey. There should be absolutely no doubt that the old covenant is gone, the new covenant is here, and Jesus is our high priest. And we should be humbly grateful for God's provision of that. Next week, we're going to be looking at the first half of chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And we'll study another really interesting topic, which is old rules about worship. I can't wait to get into that with you. Thanks again for being with us today. It's been awesome to be with you. Have a great rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.